Somebody's making money off the propane there. Somebody's making money here off the ceramic here. The glass maker, the valves, all these things. So you're talking many different businesses and ancillary businesses that are all coming together to make something like this, mm -hmm. which never happened yep. in the past. Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. These are the last days of prohibition. And this show seeks to feature the stories of the founders, the investors, the marketers, that are bridging the gap. The day of getting a little dime bag from your guy on the corner is done. It's not happening. We have a fantastic show on tap for you today. Director of Berkeley Patient Group, Eddie Infontaine. He's a veteran of the Gulf War. He talks about how he has the passion for patients in his own daily life because of his experience in the Gulf War. He talks about the VA. We get into the technology necessary for cannabis, how as founders and investors, we have to continue to iterate. We have to continue to innovate and never ever stop learning. It's a fantastic discussion. It's this sweeping episode about the history of legalization and what will be the end of prohibition. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So yeah, I'm just curious. I mean, BPG is widely regarded to be one of the most important, one of the biggest dispensaries in the country, if not in the world. What motivates you to wake up every day and do this work? I'm a patient, first of all, and uh, I'm a Gulf War veteran, uh, and that what makes me a patient. I was in the military. I joined the Army National Guard uh, back in 1988. And a couple years later, I found myself on the front lines, uh, happened to be attached to a very elite National Guard unit uh, that became the artillery support for the French Foreign Legion. So uh, while I was in the Gulf, I sustained some injuries and uh, was also exposed to a lot of uh, fallout from nuclear biological contaminants. Mm. Uh, that happened to be in large bunkers um, in Iraq uh, around me at the time. Demolition had come through and basically blew things up so that the Iraqis couldn't use them on yep. us and inadvertently exposed myself and my unit to seven-page list that came to me in 1997 through the VA of chemicals that were some American-made from American-made shells that we had sold to the Iraqis back mm -hmm. in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So the reality of uh, my patient uh, needs, I had a wasting syndrome due to Gulf War syndrome. It was, uh, I have nerve damage and um, PTSD and nausea and various other issues that um, was, well, I was not getting relief from conventional medicines. And when I was going through rehab in Germany, I had a uh, military major uh, come to me and ask me if I had heard of uh, cannabis marijuana at the time. They didn't re really use that nomenclature. And I kind of laughed at it. I was really shocked, yeah, yeah. needless to say, because like, we're in the army. I was like, okay, where's Ellen Funt? This is, uh, <laughs> you know, this is definitely, somebody's trying to catch me in something <laughs> yeah, here. Where's the camera? I know, question. this is a joke. Um, but he was dead serious. Um, and I asked him, well, I, where do I go? And he's like, oh, you can't go fill it in the pharmacy. And so the only place I uh, could find would be go to the local bars offside base and, you know, try to find hashish. And I found it and 
started utilizing it, and as I used it, started to find myself hungry, started getting an appetite. When I came back stateside, I uh, got access to flowers and cannabis, and basically self-healed myself through medical cannabis. And inadvertently, I was um, on my way to a promotion and was given a urinalysis, which turned out, of course, to be positive mm -hmm. because I'd been using my medicine. Yeah. And um, I was kicked out, lost all my benefits, didn't get, of course, my promotion, and I was halfway through a semester in college and was absolutely scared, didn't know what to do. There was no support or anything like that. Yep. And it happened that fortuitous week, I walked down on Telegraph and Channing in Berkeley, and there was this guy barking out, Cannabis Action Network, we're having our first meeting here in California. Dr. Todd McAria, Debbie Goldsberry, and others will be speaking, and then I was like, ooh, I'm interested. <clears throat> so grabbed a flyer, and it was about a half-hour walk to the event, and got there, and Todd McAria got up and spoke, and as a veteran, if you know anything about Dr. Todd McAria, he compiled the uh, medical papers by the U.S. government uh, regarding cannabis, mm -hmm. and had a huge book, big green book, and... I latched onto him like a lamprey onto a shark. I was like, I want to know everything. Please tell me. I've been kicked out of the VA. I've got these crazy blisters on the bottom of my feet that went on for nine years due to exposure. Wow. You know, and all kinds of things that the VA was saying is all in my head. Yep. But I realized that mm, through this medicine, I could heal myself and help others. And as a veteran, I kind of always felt after the battlefield, every day afterwards gravy. So mm. I've seen the worst man can do, so why not try to help man out and do something better? And so I committed myself then, and I remember walking over, and Debbie had a piece of hemp cloth in her hand and held it out and said, touch this. This is made from cannabis. And I remember touching that. It was literally like this whole epiphany. And having the Jack's book in one hand and then touching that hemp, I realized, Oh shit, there's a wow. whole bunch of information cool cool I moment. need to know. And we can't change everyone's opinion, but if we can plant a seed, which is that flyer, if you put it in your pocket and somehow you forget it. And Inception. Your parent opens up your thing when they go to actually thing and mm -hmm. says, hey, what about this? And it sparked a conversation. Yeah, I mean, given that you have this rich background in sort of activism, you were there in the beginning. Mm -hmm. How does sort of the environment make you feel today? I mean, we're in, in this cannabis incubator, we're a gateway, right, which very much represents sort of new cannabis. I mean, what, what do you think of sort of uh, the way everything has come together? How do you feel about the... Um, it's what we've worked for. It's what we've all been trying to do. We've all been playing Sisyphus with a hand on that rock, pushing it, rotating it, trying to carry that torch as long as we each could. Some have fallen by the wayside, some have died. Unfortunately, many have died, but um, each one of us have kind of been that millionth monkey, you know? Mm -hmm. If you know the story of the hundredth monkey, are you familiar with that nope. psychological term? Nope. So a hundredth monkey is that monkey when all society's monkeys scratch with their right hand on their buttock, okay? New one is born, somehow decides to scratch with his left. Okay. And entire society beats at that one and don't even know why. Just because uh, they're different. Just because it's different. Yep. How dare you be different? And so that one is suppressed and beaten down, and it stops. But more are born, and more continue to do it. And over time, it completely changes, and everybody's scratching with their left, and they don't know why. Mm. So 
we've kind of always viewed ourselves as kind of millions monkeys. Mm -hmm. We were kind of go out there and inspire. I was able to inspire people because I was a veteran. I was able to speak to my truth and say, hey, this is the medicine, this really works. Mm -hmm. But this is in the dark days when they weren't believing that. They're, oh, you're just getting high. And it's like, no, seriously. And so we had to slog it out through the lies, misinformation, be harassed, physically intimidated, guns pulled on us. I mean, all kinds of things that, mm -hmm. that took place. When you, I've been through 47 states doing rallies, teachings, and tours, educating Americans about their rights, mostly on college campuses. Because what are the three that you haven't been to? The three that didn't do are Alaska, Hawaii, and North Dakota, because we really didn't have organizers in North Dakota. Uh, our whole thing was to go to college campuses and try to find um, an organizer. So we'd go to the free speech area, and then we'd find a college student that was like, hey, you know what? I could do this here. And we're like, yes, you can. And here's the tools you need. And so then we became a support network where yeah. we would provide them with literature and information. And then on those tours, after we'd send that information to them, we'd come, do their rally, and then we'd critique them. We'd say, hey, this did great here. We got a lot of people. Or what happened? We only got a few people here. Mm -hmm. where, where did you fly? Did you advertise on the radio? You know, we try to look at ways to pre-internet at how to broaden the, the, the message so that yep. people had access to know that the message was accessible. Yep. Because back then, there was no internet. There was no, hmm, let's go search out cannabis facts and fiction. Sure. So we would have those, and then we'd sell them on t-shirts. We'd have these cool designs on the front, and then on the back, they'd have these did you know facts that had, you know, one acre of hemp says four acres of trees. You know, all these cool. types of... Yeah you know, little information things that started to eh, catch hold in society. But when I traveled up to Canada with LV Muzika, she got caught with her American cannabis and they kicked us out of Canada so we couldn't go do our rally in Vancouver mm -hmm. because, you know, they said she was smuggling, you know, medical cannabis. Yep. And then we come back to the American side and then we have those guys say, what do you get, what are you back here for? Where's your vehicle? Well, we got kicked out for pot. Pot? Who's pot? And she's like, government grown. And they're like, government grown? University of Mississippi, what the, f <laughs> and you just watch these people literally brain shit themselves so that they couldn't figure or fathom, and so yep. that was one of the amazing things is when we did Hemp Tour, we had Elvie Muzika, who was a medical patient who sued the government for 12 years just for her access yep. to medical cannabis, so by having her, myself, and others, Jeff Jones would end up joining us later on. Um, and various other activists along the way. You know, I, there's so many, Melina, my ex-wife, Rachel. Um, there's so many names and faces that helped spawn, you know, John Hunt, who was Debbie's partner. Yeah. He would do Lollapalooza tour while I would do Horde tour because it be become so large in time that we were on two different tours at the same time, then became three tours. So it was then recruiting and finding other Debbies and other ATNs and yep. other Jeffs and yep. saying, hey, you really want to do this? Put your money where your mouth is. By the way, we're all volunteers. We're not getting paid for this, but it's the most enriching experience you'll ever have in your life. Yeah, no, I think it's such an important point and a theme of this show is that uh, if you were new to cannabis, if you were a founding a company today, if you want to invest in cannabis, you have an obligation to understand uh, the history and the players that made the sacrifices to get here, like yourself, like Debbie, like Ed. You know, I think there's, there's just not enough people that understand the sacrifices that were made in those times. And that's okay. I agree to a certain extent that it has to be documented that this history is um, not accessible to most people because 
it was a drug war. Our friends and brothers and sisters were going to jail. We had to hide. Okay, that's why I'm not very well known as much as some of my other celebrity friends are. I was that trusted one behind the scenes making things happen because that's just the reality of how it was. We had to hide. We had to protect ourselves. I liked being the anonymous one showing up at parties. Who the hell is this guy hanging around? He knows everybody. And I was fine with that because there was so much going behind the scenes that we have created from, you know, Oaksterdam to 215 to... 19, the failures, the successes, all along the way, going back to Jackson initiatives back in 94 and 95, mm -hmm. you know, calling for complete reciprocation and all kinds of outlandish things at the time, but those were our leaders, Jack Herrera, Dennis Perone, those were the organizers, the main organizers in California, it was Jack in the south and Dennis in the north, mm -hmm. and you had to deal with them, and that was the reality, so times have changed. Jack's passed on. Dennis has moved on to other things, but they were the seeds, okay? Before us, there was Ed Holloway, who was back in the 60s going around and gathering cannabis around the world, yep. you know, before Ed Rosenthal, you know, that created the strains of cannabis that went to the Netherlands that are these strains that we enjoy today. We dreamed, we hoped, oh, 20 years from now, you'll be able to actually go buy retail cannabis in the United States. <laughs> It's reality. Back then, everybody went and used to tell us, it'll never happen in my lifetime. And that was pervasive in every state I went to. And today, it's, it's either legal here or when's it coming to my state? Right, yeah. So that complete paradigm shift is owed to hundreds of thousands of unsung heroes. It's that person that's lying in jail whose parents and family got educated about the drug war because oh shit, my son's in jail for an ungodly amount of time that not even murderers and rapists do. Mm -hmm. And that it's become so pervasive of preying on the drug war that it's economically almost impossible to pry it out of our hands in America now because the cheap production of labor in prisons, I mean, Hain, you're talking about Victoria's Secret, all kinds of Old Navy, all these things that America buys so cheap mm -hmm. that are prison-made labor. And they need people to man those prisons to where prisons are privatized now. I had a friend of mine who was in Colorado, Colorado jail. He was busted for cannabis pre the law change there in Colorado. And he was growing tilapia fish at the prison. And they were selling that fish for pennies on the dollar to Walmart, I mean to Whole Foods as organically grown fish, okay? <laughs> so it's how pervasive this is in our society. And so as much as we are affecting change and change is happening, we still have so much more to do. There's so many more people in jail. And the unsung heroes are, today if there were a hero, it's that person who's wallowing in jail right now who is wondering, fuck, it's legal in Colorado, Oregon, Washington, and mm -hmm. DC, why am I in jail for this? Why is a guy in jail for 13 plus years in Louisiana for two grams. You know, these types of injustices are the reasons why we're still in it, why we contribute, why we're still activists, why we're social organizations. We're not just, you know, dispensaries. We contribute back to our society. We contribute to these organizations because we want to be the change. We spend with our dollars, so we vote with our dollars. So mm -hmm. our voices count, but our dollars count as well.
I think it's a trap that I fall into and so many others do too of, you know, we're only a part of our little bubble. And in California, particularly in the Bay Area, cannabis use is pretty open. You know, you can smoke most places on the street. And we forget that in so many other places, forget the rest of the world, but just in this country, prohibition is alive and well, right? And, and it's just such an important piece to, to hit home for someone that lives maybe in California or Colorado. Or I'm from Louisiana. That's how I got the funny name. Uh -huh. And <laughs> I just watched law change in New Orleans where they decriminalized New Orleans. Like, okay, great, what about the rest of the state? But you gotta understand, the prison industrial complex in Louisiana is the largest industry. Mm -hmm. Louisiana incarcerates more people than any other state. Mm -hmm. So I have activists all the time coming to me saying, hey, you're from Louisiana, Etienne, what do we do? What do we continue to do? I was like, get the hell out of there. Go to states and go where it's legal because yeah. the reality is, that place is not going to change. It's incrementally changing, but even the law itself, that law that just changes up to the officer's discretion. Mm, mm. So if you're an asshole to the officer, he can just, at his own discretion, continue that whole, Do what he you wants, know, basically. exactly. And then you end up in jail on a bad day. And needless to say, a, a lot of costs in lawyers. So these are things that we have learned that we have to continue to educate. We have to know where and when to pick our battles. Mm. Okay, without a doubt, um, we fought many battles with Berkeley Patients Group. Right now, we're suing the federal government because we're the, uh, we're the only dispensary that was forcibly evicted that moved and reopened. And then they came and tried to evict us from where we currently are. Wow. So uh, since 2012, I'm suing the federal government because they're trying to arbitrarily change the line in the sand. Their line in the sand was, you know, schools and grade schools. Now they've changed it, not by law, but the U.S. attorney has decided to say that daycare centers and child uh, daycare centers uh, are also within fall, that into that fall under that yeah. thousand yeah. foot rule. And there's no law that says that. So mm. we're doing our best in court and we're having our, our checks and balances there. And the reality still remains to be seen. As we see it, it's kind of the last swing of the dragon's tail of prohibition to an extent, but we're still warriors fighting day in and day out. You yep. know, it's quite stressful suing the federal government while also operating a dispensary that is legal, uh, respected uh, by our city and our state, and uh, continues to set the standard that many dispensaries use as the model that has become pervasive across the United States and across the world, which we take great pride in. Yeah, no, I mean, we should talk about that a little bit. It, not without its challenges, obviously, no. uh, but you've had some, some great success. I mean, I think one of the, the fascinating parts is the, the sheer scale of what you guys do. Can you give us a feeling for how big BPG is in relation to other dispensaries? And, you know? uh, well, we used to be in a larger location. Yeah. Back when I first came with uh, Debbie Goldsberry and Don Duncan, um, the original uh, founder, uh, Jim McClellan had um, wanted to provide a place for patients to be. And so it was originally down on 2747, which uh, San Pablo Avenue, which was an old um, Mel's Diner way back in the day. Mm. It had a Mel's cool Diner. circle on around the front, yeah. and uh, it was a tool rental place before we got it. And we converted it into a lounge in the front where we had vaporizer volcanoes set up. It was two way, uh, it was one way glass where, you know, people could you know, look out, but you couldn't look in from outside. And we always sought to improve ourselves. We always looked around 
because we were patients, we started off very, very small with only a handful of people, but the need and the desire of the patients showed us the reason to have different qualities of cannabis and then to look beyond that. Because we had to be not-for-profits, we had to look at what to do with the money that we were doing. So mm. we would put them into social organizations. We would put them into acupuncture and massage mm. that were there free to yep. our members. Yep. So we started to set that standard. And then others were like, hey, that's a great idea. Because our patients found that th there's, of course, benefit to medical cannabis. But you know, then we would have dietitians come in and give dietitian classes. Then we would have people who uh, wanted to teach people how to read because of you know, there's a, a, a huge problem with people learning how to read still as adults in the United States. Yep. Then we would evolve that into um, finding the Berkeley Free Clinic and then they would come and post up a couple times a week outside of the dispensary so that patients could be seen for, you know, dental, they could be seen free of charge for, uh, you know, wow. STD testing, HIV testing, hepatitis testing, yep. and information services. So we learned from our patients, um, and we learned a great deal of compassion uh, to look for other things like needle exchange and other ways of harm reduction by offering volcanoes and educating mm. people on the different ways of ingestion. Because back then, you know, there were no studies, but we found that this worked. And then a vaporizer study came out, and then we had access to vaporizers, right. and we had access to volcanoes, and mm. then patients could. So patients could come in and they'd give us an ID and they would give them the bag and then they could go with their medicine and sit down or if they wanted rolling papers we had free rolling papers or bongs if they wanted and they just exchanged and they would go out and yeah, you guys wrote the, you wrote the playbook on what a collective looks like right I mean what what it means yes. to be a member of a dispensary, all the other added services, the holistic sort of view As well on as health, providing right? free yeah. medical cannabis for low income. We yeah. used to just do that all the time if you said you were, but it became so abusive and so many other dispensaries were doing that that if people would go out and it would like be known like a Tuesday circuit where, oh, it's free medicine day, and people would just go around and go get free medicine and have a nice stash. Yep. So we started to realize that we had to go past that. So we looked to social service workers and got them to help us give an evaluation so that we could actually deem you properly low income mm -hmm. so that then we could distribute five grams or edibles to these patients consistently. And that's what we do now. We continue to do so, uh, provide uh, free medication to people who meet the low income standard. Mm -hmm. And as they come or pass away, We've also got into hospice. We were able to do that for a while, but that turned out to be very challenging and very difficult as our patients passed away. Mm. We wanted to find a way to access so we would, our patients, because we would find out our patients passed away through a relative coming and saying thank you. And that was gut-wrenching to us because we realized that at the end of their life, this patient was without their medicine and how could we improve on that? So oh, wow. yeah. we started at hospice, but that got very difficult and challenging. And what was so that, challenging about it? Because the patients died and the, the visitors, and they became very close and it became very traumatic and difficult for them then afterwards to then go on to somebody else mm. because it was such a profound and difficult experience. It showed us how difficult the death transition is and can be on us healthy people, much less how it is on the family members, etc. Right. So right. it was another humbling experience that showed us our humanity and different ways that we needed to access our patients and patient base so that hopefully in the future there will be nursing homes so that there won't be patients having to live in that fear. Yep.
What's up, IC fans? We are at the new home of investing in cannabis, Gateway, in Oakland, California. It's really in two parts. So there's an incubator where they're going to help 10 companies get investment and press and you know advice. And they've asked me to be a mentor here, which is awesome. Thanks again, guys. Also going to be the new home of investing in cannabis. So we're going to do most of our shows here. It's a great space. In addition to the incubator, which you have to be accepted for, there's also Gateway Works which is just a really cool place where you can come and buy a desk, a monthly desk, right? I think it's 350 for the month. Get away from your roommates. You don't have to worry about having a stuck up landlord. It's hard to find desk space, hard to find a place to work in the cannabis world. And then you can be a part of this cannabis entrepreneur uh, community as well. And you can benefit from the other founders. Great synergy here. If you've never been in a co-working space, it's like the way to start a company. You touched on a little bit about the move in location from mm -hmm. BPG, um, but this is a pretty dark time at, in, in the history of the dispensary, right? Can you, you talk a little bit about that period and, and the proceedings and, and what happened there? We received um, a letter in the mail basically saying uh, you're being evicted. Um, the government had done something previously back in 2007 and nothing ever came of it. This time, they, besides going after the landlord, which we had a very strong landlord at the time, uh, the government went even further and went directly to the bank and told the bank that it was providing the loan for the property that if they did not evict us or the landlord that um, they were going to seize the bank as well as seize the property. So um, talk about a no-win situation. Yeah. Uh, we had to close down in May of 2012. I had to lay off 50 of my 70 plus employees. One of the uh, needless to say most painful experiences I've ever had to go through. And um, we closed down May 1st because we told the U.S. Attorney that we would vacate by that time, which we did. We then reopened within 30 days as a delivery service to our members. Mm. And we're very fortunate to then find, shortly after, a landlord willing to rent us a spot. And it was met all the parameters of the city, state, and of course, at the time, the federal government, because there was no schools, grade schools, et cetera, around us for that 1,000 feet. We worked a miracle of miracles to actually take raw land and a shell of a building that used to be an A&W root beer stand that was considered, a, I guess, a kind of a Superfund site that was mm. reclaimed but was abandoned for 25 years. Mm -hmm. We razzed it and basically built a completely new dispensary in five months. And in December of 12, 2012, Berkeley Patients Group reopened in our new location within the year. And our patients came back to us and it was a much smaller location. We no longer had the front lounge. I was able to hire some of my people back. Mm -hmm. But the realization of having a delivery service for our patient base and for our homebound patients especially showed us the need to continue to do the delivery service. Mm -hmm. So we continued the delivery service from yeah. our new location yeah. and have continued and are just about back at the uh, patient base that we had previously oh, wow. um, at the old location and have continued to um, survive, prosper, um, as well as look at new things, 
always pushing the boundaries. Berkeley Patients Group was one of the earlier testers. We basically went out and were curious. Debbie and I in 2007 wanted to know, okay, we'd both gotten sick off of uh, cannabis that we smoked. And we were like, well, we couldn't see anything, but there's other things on here that we can't figure out. So we wanted to know about testing and no mm. one who was doing it. Mm. And so we wanted to learn more and we started to talk to labs and like, we'd love to do it. We don't have the calibrating solution to know to what we do. Yep. Apparently the University of Mississippi has this information and they have the wheel and you're gonna have to reinvent it. <laughs> Was what we were left with. Yeah. So we went and we found the experts and uh, found a laboratory domestically that was kind of starting out. And then we found the real experts around the world, brought them here and brought them to laboratories and started testing and then started ring testing then other hmm. um, laboratories. Got to understand back then, it's still, I don't know if had the law has changed, but it's $10,000 fine per test. Wow. Okay. So we had to do all this also under the threat of the realities in these laboratories who spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in equipment that they have. And I unsuccessfully worked with a laboratory for a couple of years, but in the end, their investors were too afraid to take it forward. Hmm. But out of it, we were able to understand what THC was, where it was. And out of it, we found CBD spike, which yep. out of it, we found CBD, which is, of course, sparked a whole new world. Mm -hmm. Now we're finding CBG, CBC, and finding all types of other spikes as we've now set the standards. So we've been proud to be pioneers in testing. And I think it's one of the most fascinating parts of the industry. We did a great interview over at Steep Hill Labs. Mm -hmm. uh, you can go back and check that out. We, he took us through the lab and kind of showed us some of the more expensive pieces. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. But yeah, I want to talk about a little bit of the new things associated with running a dispensary because you do run a dispensary. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, technology really has come to uh, a crossroads with cannabis in a lot of ways. You know, you, you mentioned delivery or online uh, ordering systems. How do you begin to evaluate uh, new technologies, new softwares that are, that are presented to you? It's challenging because the most of them don't provide what we need. If you're a small dispensary, for the most part, that's great. But when you're seeing 700, 800 plus patients a day, dynamics change significantly. Mm. From everywhere, from how you purchase, to how you store it, to how it's brought to market. It's always been challenging. We've had to literally invent everything from the ground up. Mm. So I've found tech people and created our own software along the way because there's no delivery software. Maybe there is now. There was no dispensary software because yep. we're the pioneers. Yep. You know, we were back in the day before where it was just cash register. Now we want to go beyond cash registers. We want to go to scan systems. Oh, they don't make them. Now they do. But back in the day, we had to literally start from scratch, buy tools from here and there, hodgepodge it together, roll the dice and hope it all worked given the mm -hmm. current Microsoft at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and as we know, Microsoft Works was the biggest, you know, redundancy in, in wordage and verbiage ever. So <laughs> with those challenges and QuickBooks and QuickBooks challenges and things like that, it's always evolving. Not only that, try losing your bank. Try mm. losing 35 banks. Mm. You get tired of it after 35. So is that currently what you're still doing, is using all your in-house built technology, like when you do delivery yes. and all, you've built everything? Yes. 
and you continue to maintain it, which is expensive, right? I mean, you have, you have well, engineers. Well, not only that, I'm in the midst of investing in the the next generation and the upgrade for that because sure, people have caught up to where I am to some parts, or they sell it in pieces. But I've gone past that. You know, I have. When everybody else went off and started to think about doing franchises, and when my company was actually shutting down in 2012 because of the closure, I took my people and had them document every nth of every degree of what they do. So not only do I have an understanding, I have formulas. I have formulas because in 2009, when the original Cole memo came out and they actually said, the Ogden memo, when they actually said, we're going to let you guys exist. Debbie and I said, well, let's go hire experts. Let's go hire efficiency experts. Tell us where we suck. Mm. And that's kind of one of the things we've always kind of done at BPG. We wanted to evolve. We wanted to challenge ourselves. We wanted to understand that what we've done as collective activists is one thing. Now this is a t different paradigm shift into business in the sense of Education by activists was very easy. Now we were hiring people to be behind the counter to educate people on, if you look at the Canna Bible and the Big Book of Buds, thousands of varieties of yep. cannabis talk about them and then educate the patient regarding them. And then have to then educate the patient that you and I can have the same medical condition, but what works for you won't work for me, sure. and what won't work for me, vice versa. So welcome to the trial and error phase of your reality. So that taught us that mm, we have to have lower access portions, such as grams, for patients so that they can try something because so yep. they're not committed to the eighth or the ounce or something like that, that they have to buy a large buck and it doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. um, and the consistency has always been a problem because uh, we don't have farm growers out there that are uh, you know, licensed, et cetera. Yep. We, I can't, like Walmart, go and inspect the apple orchards of the orchards of the things that I'm going to buy into the future. Maybe that will change in time. We're reliant on our patients and our patient cultivars. So for us, it's always been about educating them how to grow properly, providing them with the genetics to do so from clones and seeds, mm -hmm. educating them consistently when they come in, what is wrong with this cannabis. I've learned over time, I started off at the way as a buyer, I'll work my way all the way up to director but I was a buyer for five years. So I've seen literally tons of cannabis. So I can literally look at a cannabis and tell you what's wrong with it. And you can tell me all you want, but you're lying to me and the bud's telling me the truth. So <laughs> we took what we would call organoleptic testing, which is the visually sighting of the cannabis, the smell, et cetera. And now we had the science to then calibrate against it. So we had mm. now two tools that one was tried and true for us, which is the organoleptic testing, because we did that up until 2007, 2008, when testing just started. And now in Berkeley, it's mandatory. Nothing hits our floor, period, that has not been tested and cleared Thankfully. first. And Berkeley is the only city in the United States that currently does that. Mm. Okay, mm. So we, are, again, are setting the standards and are very fortunate to have a city that is open to dialogue and discussion regarding cannabis and medical cannabis to where they're like, okay, we see that you've been giving away your medical cannabis to patients, we're going to now make it part of the law. And you saw a few years ago, it was a big splash of, Berkeley patients are going to, you know, get free marijuana, you know, and <laughs> it's not the case. You know, if you meet the criteria of low income, yes, 2% does go to, you know, patients for free. Yep. Okay. But, you know, we're getting taxed. 
in Berkeley. We pay a 2.5% tax. Mm -hmm. That was due to initiative process. That was actually reactionary to initiative process. Back in 2004, Berkeley Patients Group was trying to get its actual permit from our city and they wouldn't give it to us. Mm. So we, uh, thanks to James Anthony, um, uh, put together an initiative in Berkeley, got signatures for it, got it on the ballot, and in the 2004 election, uh, it was uh, Measure R. And it failed by less than 1% of the vote. Now, when that happens, you can then pay for a recount. So the three dispensaries in Berkeley, we all paid for an actual recount. And it was a terrifying process. How much does that process. cost, by the way? Uh, it was $30,000 the next day. The next day? Yes. Okay. After we found out, we had to come up with it and do that. And then, as Liana and Debbie will tell you, it was the most horrifying experience watching these people actually go through and count it. They were literally taking students, you know, actual registrations and cards and their votes and saying, oh, they're transient and throwing them out. I mean, it was absolutely gut-wrenching. Wow. Out of nowhere, as we were getting ready to kind of concede defeat, these lawyers contacted us out of Florida and said, you have the perfect storm. Please, can we have it? We're like, absolutely, go for it. <laughs> and over time, um, two of our patients, uh, Mike Goodbar and um, Donald Tolbert, rest in peace, uh, became the plaintiffs uh, against uh, Diebold. And we sued Alameda County and Diebold and won. Wow. Believe it or not, uh, Alameda County could not attest for, nor Diebold could produce, I kid you not, 420 individual voting machines. What we had done is we won the right for you, 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 and you to look inside every individual voting machine. What we had originally done and asked to do that, they were like, no, you can look into what we downloaded them into, but you can't look inside the mm. individual machine. Mm. We said, no, we don't want to see inside that machine. And they're like, no. And we're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and in the end, we won. And in 2008, a judge said, congratulations, it's going back on the ballot. And it went on the ballot, and we won by over 64% of the vote in Berkeley. It was Measure JJ. And that finally gave us, after all those years, our actual business permit to exist in the city of Berkeley, even mm -hmm. though we're tolerated. Mm -hmm. But out of that, the city then, um, we also said, of course, the Berkeley Medical Cannabis Commission. We wanted an oversight organization where we could appoint people to oversee cannabis and have a voice in medical cannabis. Well, in 2010, the city of Berkeley then produced Measure uh, T and Measure S, which basically um, put a taxation on medical cannabis, 2.5% retail and a two point of our entire retail sales, and then 2.5% of our wholesale sales. Uh, then, then they also rebuked or pulled off our constituency from the actual BMCC, and then the city council reported their own uh, appointees at that time. Uh, so that tax we have unfortunately had to pass on to the patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then of course, we were the test case for the State Board of Equalization for the taxation in the first place, if whether medical cannabis was taxable or not. Mm. And we lost that case. Mm. As you know, the state of California decided that it was going to tax and we had to settle that uh, you know, uh, out of tax court. and. That was costly, but that was the reality of dealing with the State Board of Equalization. Now, where that is interesting, and if business owners, this is very fascinating, 
The State Board of Equalization would not issue a permit for medical cannabis dispensaries back in California. Mm -hmm. So we requested them, and they're like, nah, not going to happen. <laughs> in 2007, though, in a closed-door meeting, they decided, we're going to tax medical cannabis. Not necessarily give out permits, but we're going to tax it, and we're going to tax it, and we're going to go back retroactively. Mm -mm. Retroactive. Oh, yeah. So then they took all of our tax returns and then came back and non-taxable medicine and they hit us with that as a tax mm. and so a lot of us uh, some people settled some people lost their businesses and we went through the entire process we went forward willfully to the state board of equalization saying hey this is not something we accrued or did this is your change and we went through that entire process which needless to say was very expensive and very challenging and so on top of the 5% tax that I pay in Berkeley, now we also pay a 9% tax over the counter as well. Now with the future discussion of taxation, yep. they're discussing another 15% tax. So you're talking about, you know, taxing my patients 27 plus percent right yeah, off the at, gate. At some point it's an attack just on small business too, right? I mean, how are, how are you supposed to be you an entrepreneur? You have to pay to play. That's the reality. Every other business has to pay taxes. But yes, there's no other business that is taxed yeah. quite like cannabis. Yeah. And they're seeing, unfortunately, the inflated prohibition numbers that have brought in because, you know, back in the day we we're paying obnoxious prices for cannabis, six to $7,000 a pound. Yeah. Over time, we've been able to actually change that and alter the price and bring it down to more reasonable reality. Mm -hmm. But the reality of farming and agriculture is the price is only going to go down. It's a race yeah, to the bottom. There's true. no agricultural pr crop that goes up unless, you know, it's the very Simple fine, rare right, ones. Yeah. And you're talking those are truffles and saffron and things right, like that, right, right, which right. are very difficult to deal and deal with. Whereas cannabis is, a, you know, an easy to weed, grow weed, yeah, yeah. you know, and to see it, the inflation modification dollar signs in these in these politicians eyes is beyond frustrating because they just see it by the prohibition numbers and not realizing that yes in a time you're going to tax us all out of business yeah. you can do Those that or we can all work together to to make this more realistic but um the reality is, is you got to pay to play. And so because you've been there pretty much every step of the way, I mean, what, what are you looking forward to in, in 2016? I mean, fingers crossed for November. What do you think of, of Sean Parker's bill that he's proposed? I mean, you know, how, how should we do this? How should we go? Forward? I don't agree with any initiatives that are out there okay. currently. Okay. I do not personally endorse them. Whether they make the ballot or not and they actually go to the ballot, I'll make that decision personally. Berkeley Patients Group has always been a hotbed of activism, and we've opened our access to anybody who wants to come gather signatures. You can come gather signatures. We've offered it to all the initiatives. Did it back with you know, uh, 19 and others as well. We support the democratic process. I want to see legalization happen in California, but I don't want to see it at the criminalization or the destruction of the, the cottage industry that we have built here. We've seen what happened in Colorado and in Washington with the legalization, the attempts to actually bring it to market. There's been some successes there, but there's yep. some great failures that yep. we have also, we learned from. It's kind of why we're unfortunately, yet fortunately, glad we lost with 19, because we won't be the test cases 
to where this will actually be. Yeah, what, so, what do you think are those? Uh, you know, what's, what's the biggest concern, the mistake that's been made by Colorado or Washington that you're concerned about here in California? A consistency of quality. Uh, we have seen um, access of quality down. Uh, you're not seeing things tested before they come to market. Mm -hmm. For some reason, there's a delay in the testing. And now you've got these recalls, which, are gotta, which are, you're reading about week after week now, which are frightening to the patients, are curious to the patient, yeah. as well as destroying these individual businesses that are just fledgling businesses trying to get their foot in the door, yeah. are going to be destroyed because somebody made a mistake, or there's not an understanding of what this actually does, or what this particular chemical will do or will not do. There's mm -hmm. still so much misinformation regarding pesticides, testing, herbicides, that is pervasive throughout, as well as we're not dealing with OSHA standards. We're not dealing with the organic standards coming in yeah. uh, and wanting to work with us yet. We're having to deal with agricultural economy and access of these things that are out there. And there's so many chemicals and problems that are out there that we have to have testing. It needs to be done beforehand. I think that we see failures in states to get the access to the patients or their cards and information out to them in due time. We saw delays where you know, facilities had to destroy pay plants after plants, healthy plants, because they weren't tagged right or the mm. paperwork didn't come in time or you know, that has been really a problem. So to see that type of uh, trip up along the way, I mean, they're learning from it. It was going to be a learning experience. And, what happens in California is with its new laws, with MRSA, it's going to be a learning experience and a change because I can no longer deal with you, the patient. I can't get the feedback from you. Mm. But I no longer have to now take that burden of testing and all that. That's now on the distributor. But you now deal with the distributor. Now I have to deal with the distributor, which means you're going to pay for that distributor. It means I'm going to be paying for that distributor too mm -hmm. because it's, he's getting it both ways. Yep. Now, I can be a manufacturer and a retail, but I can't be the distributor and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So the dynamic there is interesting, but unfortunately it's going after that alcohol um, dynamic, but that's kind of the only dynamic that's been out there that has seen a prohibited product yep. brought to the market. Yep. Okay, so I understand why it yeah, is- Yeah, it's the only precedent we have. And yep. why the, the first person for the oversight is going to be somebody from the ABC control. And I'm okay with that because they have experience in that understanding and can help us with this transition. It's going to be unique. But I hope that in 2018, we will see uh, organic standards be accessible and be applied so that, because that's a two-year process, so in 2020 and 2021, I can have access and buy it from that distributor, organic access cannabis that I know is actually certified organic. I know organic growers that grow that way, but they're not certified. They want to be certified. Mm. They want to be legal. They take pride in what they do, but they're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their businesses. They're not going to have many people are going to be lost out in this industry. I mean, I'm fortunate because we're a pioneer and have been involved with a city that cares. So I will get one of the first licenses when the state does so. But how many qualified people around the state don't have, you know, a city that cares? You know, and that's the problem with MRSA is it's still allowed for local jurisdictions. So access for patients all across the state are going to suffer, okay? Sure, Berkeley will benefit from it, but I hate the idea that other patients are going to suffer and wallow because they can't access me here in Berkeley, nor can I deliver it or mail it to them because they're inaccessible to it. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I used to have somebody when there was no, no dispensaries in San Diego literally drive up from San Diego just to get his medicine. 
That's a nine hour trip. Hmm. So I want to shift gears here a little bit. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is ask guests about sort of their own personal consumption. And I find it fascinating, aside from your business and your huge contribution to the industry, you have your dab rig here, right? So you're, you are a lot in concentrates, so you smoke flowers as well? Uh, so this piece is the evolution of many different years of uh, technology as well as understanding. This is a rather unique piece um, created by Hitman Glass, which is a LA glass company. I was very fortunate back in uh, the late 90s to work in one of the largest head shops in the world in Los Angeles for uh, Galaxy Gallery Glass, uh, which was an actual art gallery and a bong shop, head shop. Mm -hmm. So we used to carry the Jerome Baker, all the original, back then it was the, the high-end stuff, it was called a mothership from Jerome Baker, different from the mothership glass altogether today. but. Back then, a lot of people had a disposable economy, so we sold everything from the small spoon to the finely worked hammers, you know, the snodgrass-type hammers yeah. that, you know, Bob Snodgrass was one of the original, back in the early can days and when we did the dead tour and we used to do uh, the dead shows when we would come through, Bob Snodgrass was a legend. He was the one who really started with the worked hammers. and. Back then, to be the shit, if you were on tour, you had a snodgrass pipe. All right. And the thing about it is that it color changed as you smoked it because uh, more of the resin. Okay. So he yeah. was the one of the marbles and all that that inspired other glass blowers. Yep. And they were heady and heady priced even back then. Mm -hmm. It was not something cheap, needless to say, that you had. Got it. You spent a lot of money for it, and it was protected in a pouch, and it was only around people, and you, only the good shit went in it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so uh, from Snodgrass, you saw um, you know, graphics continue, and uh, US bongs, and uh, different types of manufacturers. And working at gal the gallery there, it was on Melrose Avenue in Hollywood, so celebrities, sports teams, all kinds of people came through and in and out the door and it showed me early on also how I could never pick out a pot smoker in a lineup because it was yeah. every socioeconomic spectrum. Yeah. It was constantly fascinating on who was coming in the door and buying what, you know. And so for me, I like the high-end stuff because yep. I like the right fusing. I learned about glass blowing. So, you know, you learn how things are set how things are created so that you can convey that, you know, a marble inside of here. Mm -hmm. So somebody would come in and say, oh, I want this cool little $30 pipe. Well, you could get that $30 pipe production or come over here. <laughs> just, just, look, just look at this. I'm just going to put it in here. I'm just going to look at it, okay, honestly. And you put it in their hand, they're like, oh, and you start telling them. And this moment, you see the mushroom there, and they're like, oh, my God. And there's a turtle over there, oh, my God. And the next thing I know, they're buying a $1,300 hammer yeah. out the door. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'd have kids come up and be like, yeah, cops pulled me over. I was smoking my bong in my car, and they made me smash my bong. I need another Jerome Baker. So, you know, eh, here's another $500 bong for you, you know. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. And so... Talking to the glass blowers, we'd have glass blowers also come over. I would learn and understand uh, techniques, understand different types of pipe makers, pipe making, marble making, and between functionality and art. This so is, is this is this made by a machine or is this hand uh, blown? Like how, how this, is this is lathed. It's made by okay. hand, but it's also lathed, um, and it's combination of two. You know. To make something like this has to be rotated on a lathe to keep it as, you know, circular as it is. Got but it. you know, hand shaped and 
curves and all these different things are all added and all techniques that glass blowers learn. It's a very difficult thing to do and to pull off a very nice clear piece like this is it's an artisan's work as well as an engineer's work yeah. and uh, as well as it's a workman's creation mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. these are American made you know pieces of glass yep. by hard-working Americans that see the opportunity that took the challenge of saying hey I don't need necessarily just a torch I could actually co combine the two and actually you know make it a little more portable for you you know way cooler than a vase on your table too it was definitely a little little more functional yeah <laughs> needless to say but it's it's going to evolve we, we, we this was created in the you know the last five to ten years as well as what will come next what will be the next step you know yep. next there's uh, electronic vaporization that isn't coil attached yep you know battery powered and yep. then what next you know th the constant evolution is something that uh, I've always appreciated uh, I've heard of people using infrared technology to, you know, attack different cannabinoid spectrums. Nice. You know, there's all kinds of things that will continue to evolve as the excitement, as you stated earlier, you know, how do I feel about, you know, where it is now? It's exciting because yeah. now I've got engineers, now I've got people coming in and going, hey, this is a problem. This bong idea, how it's set, how can we improve it? And yeah. now you've got engineers and different people that would never look at this industry now are going hey how do i get how do i invest in that how do i actually get my money in there and then get it burned yep. you know yep. so which is why we're here and talking about things like that because there's so many as i stated ancillary businesses because you know somebody's making money off the propane there somebody's making money here off the ceramic here the glassmaker who who sells the glasses being made making money here, the valves, all these things. So you're talking many different businesses and ancillary businesses that are all coming together to make something like this, mm -hmm. which never happened yep. in the past. So yep. what will happen? Oh, I'm excited to see, you know, and I, I hope to be around to see it as it continues, you know, evolves in the next five to ten, because there's so many challenges that will be overcome, be it at the state level, federal level, hopefully, uh, that will even open up more people because then you'll have the three M's and things like that. Years ago when we wanted to make our own edible line, I wanted to reach out to the actual people who actually take formulas of cookies and make it better. And they're like, yeah, we could take that, but we can't, gotta send it without the cannabis. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't work that way. We need you to find <laughs> out what the cannabis tastes like so we can improve all this. Like we're not patients, we can't receive it. Mm. Like, oh, mm. got it, okay. Mm. So again, back in 2008, I'm still waiting for society to catch up just for that aspect, yeah. okay? So that's just the reality of the immersion is that, you know, this is just this idea, okay? Then there's the whole electronic idea. What's, you know, next to what, magnetic? You know, who knows, okay? We've seen rosin, we've seen butane extraction and things like that in the last 10 years. What will be the next extraction? We're now seeing terpene extraction and terpene modulation yep. now and separating terpene directly from the cannabis or then just making, creating your flavor, taking that Northern Lights number five and reintegrating it into your, sure. to create Designing the flavor. Designing your own experience. Yeah. Correct, yeah. okay. 
Will people come out with a pipe that I can actually, you know, have that desired effect to actually pull that type of effect out of cannabis? That'd be sweet. I've already seen it. Huh? You know, never went to market, but the idea was exceptional, but it cost so much to get to production in the millions of dollars that I've yet to see it come to market, hmm. you know? Hmm. So technology's there. I've seen the future, but what's beyond that? Yeah. That's for you to come out and to show us, to be creative, to go, hey, I can make that better. I can take this idea. I can take what originally was that, you know, honey bud that was, you know, butane extracted, put on buds because we had no other way to ingest it to where now there's a whole other industry just to ingest that type of medicine. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. And if you look at the amount of money, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, I mean, it has to be millions now if one piece sold for $100,000. You know, if you think about the technology of, you know, the dabbing tools, uh, you know, dabber equipment itself, be it manual or by electronic, you know, there's constant evolution. And just the ideas are only within the last five to 10 years. So the evolution will look completely different 10 years from now than what we're currently looking at. And that's okay, you yeah. know evolve. Let's see how we can reduce harm in a, any way for our patient. Because that's why we do this. We're looking at ways to reduce harm. Patients got into dabbing because they're only smoking a little to get a large effect yep. and for an elongated effect where they don't get it with smoking um, flowers like myself. Mm -hmm. I don't get the same effect. It's hard for me to go from dabbing and then smoking a flower. I don't get the same effect. But to me, it's no offense. It's like smoking a cigarette. It doesn't do me any good. It doesn't taste as good because I get the straight terpene flavor. I get one, the immediate effect, you know, from direct absorption from just a tiny drop. Yep. So then I can go on with my day. So I'm not then inhaling all kinds of tar. I'm not muddying up my pipe, smoking, you know, hash and all these types of things. Go ahead you and know, hit it if you want. I'm looking at ways <laughs> to actually improve my health because I realize as a go for veteran, as a, uh, a veteran who will live with this for the rest of my life because of nerve damage and the realities that I face through that exposure, I want to reduce the harm that I can. And if I want to, then my other patients do too. So it's always about also keeping in touch with the technology so we can convey and make the patient aware because I can use it all I want, but if my patients aren't aware of it, they've got, they can benefit from it. And so if yeah. I'm holding that back, then what disservice am I doing? So. It's then to educate them. And it came with rosin, educating them on what this rosin stuff is because it started to appear in our dispensary. And then people are like, uh, what is this in comparison to this? So then it falls upon us to be the educators, to say, okay, this is how this is made. This is how this is made. This is how this is ingested. And this is how this is ingested. So it's always on us to be the gatekeepers of, of information or misinformation. It's literally up to us, such as with the recent Indica Sativa situation that it completely is, goes into the ether now because we only wear Sativa and now we smoke broadleaf Indicas, narrowleaf Indicas, and regional types of you know, cannabis. So even our nomenclature evolution has changed just in the span of a couple of years due to Rob Clark's, uh, you know, most recent book. Which so. makes so much sense, because anecdotally, like, sometimes I'll, I'll smoke an indica in the morning, and it gives me energy. And I think to myself, this is so contrary to everything I've ever heard about cannabis. Indica is supposed to be the couch lock, you know, fall asleep, pain relief, and uh, it's not that way for me. If anything, I'm, like, tired, and then I'm not tired anymore. You know, 
Do you experience similar effects? Or? I have such a high level because of how I imbibe and ingest. Yeah. Uh, my titration level is higher than most patients. Uh, so for me, I still use a little in comparison to what I used to. Back in the day, I used to smoke big fat joints all the time yeah. or you know, big bowls of hash you know, to, to get the desired effect. Yeah. Whereas, again, one drop gets me to where I need to be. Yeah. And for that effect alone saves me time, money, all of those things. Your lungs. My lungs as well. Yeah. You know, body effect as because of how long the effect is in comparison to a joint or yeah. something like that. It tends yeah. to, for myself and my own experience, tend to last longer. Um, I do not ingest by eating cannabis. For me, it's too psychoactive yeah. because of when it turns to the oxyhydroxy metabolite, nerd speak, um, it really is too psychedelic for me. Yeah. Um, and because yeah, I'm not inedible. Because I was also on the front lines at Berkeley Patients Group at any given day or time or moment, I had to go from "How you doing?" to "Hello, officer, how can I help you?" You know, back when we had and allowed people to ingest, you know, people would come in and unfortunately, due to medication, would have to call 911. You know, and then they'd have to come and respond. So we had to learn how to deal with responses and how to deal with. Um, how to handle officers, how to handle fire department, how to handle EMTs, uh, sensitivity training, uh, de-escalation training. These are all the different trainings that we give our, uh, our patients who work for us that you know, are gonna convey to our patients because they have to be educated uh, on so many different things. So there's a large learning curve. There's actually like a week of training before you even hit the floor at Berkeley Patients mm. Group mm. of everything from, you know, the proper legal training, sexual harassment I would love to and, go through that training. And all those things That'd that so allow cool. you to... Could I do that? Could I, like, come for a week? I mean, not to work there. Just go like, through the training? Just go through the program? I can talk that'd to be, my people. That'd yeah. be so cool. Yeah. yeah. I would love to do that. Yeah. 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 It's always... Uh, a learning experience, you know, we want to learn from it as well, your yeah. feedback, because yeah. that's how we learn. We created an adverse reaction form because we would find patients having a different reaction from cannabis and their other medication. And so we wanted to know about that and document it. And so through doctors, we created that form uh, so that if somebody has an adverse reaction, we can then understand that. You know, Dr. Amanda Ryman used to work for Berkeley Patients Group and did her study uh, out of Berkeley Patients Group because we wanted to be uh, a hotbed access for science. We have a living, a living laboratory of information. So back in the day, Dr. Todd McCurria, until he passed away, worked with us and gathered information and talked to patients. And then when we brought in Dr. Ryman, she actually did her alcohol study there and as well as doing surveys to our patient, our patient base, so we could understand different aspects of uh, what the patient's needs were that we weren't being met, uh, how can we improve, uh, what were we doing right, uh, all these different things so that we could give the patient a better understanding so that we weren't just taking advantage of our place in our society, that we're resting on our laurels, okay, we got our place, and let's, let's just, 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 okay, cool. You know, no, it was, as patients, we, we're always curious. That's why we went and got testing. That's why and created it because we're like, yeah, if we can't do it, everybody else is probably wondering the same thing, so let's figure out how to do it, you know? And we learned, everyone learned out of it, and we'll continue to learn from it. And yep. we will continue to push the boundaries of science, but 
now that's, we're catching up to what those boundaries are, and that's very exciting to us because now I know that there's no herbicides, pesticides, molds, and mildews on my cannabis. So no one can get that upper respiratory infection that yeah, one inspired of things, it in the first place. I'm, I'm sort of horrified by it is uh, I order a lot of delivery mm -hmm. uh, as, as opposed to go to the dispensary. And sometimes I look on the menu and it says like testing pending. And it makes me so nervous because I'm like, well... So we don't know what's in it? Like Correct. We don't know what happened. You, well, here. you bought cannabis for decades prior without knowing or having it that's tested true. prior. That's fair enough. Again, that's where, again, we looked at our organoleptic testing, such as sight, smell, you know, looking under a microscope yeah. and things like that. How do, you, how do you look at delivery? Full disclosure, I work for a company called OnFleet. Uh, we make delivery software. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've, you've heard of them before. Uh, but uh, I, so I think about delivery quite a bit. You know, it's just like part of yep. my, my everyday. Is it good that that's sort of the trend? I mean, does people still need to come into the dispensary? I mean, do you encourage people to do that when versus we went delivery? From, <laughs> sorry. When we went from dispensary closing to being a delivery service, everybody wanted to look at the cannabis. We have a very educated cannabis base here in California. Yeah. They've grown up around good cannabis, so they know what they're looking for. Yeah, yeah. So even those experienced people who were like, sorry, I got to bring you what we have, you know, they like, I still want to look at it. And it was the most number one lodged reality mm -hmm. because when you do delivery, you can't have a whole bunch in the car, you know, and run yeah. around with stuff. Yeah. You get robbed. That's a loss of a lot of equipment. So you bring exactly what the person ordered. ordered yeah. Okay. And... I would say 99% of the time it was fine because we have a higher standard yeah. than you know most delivery services I know. I don't do other services, so I don't really know. All I know is from my experiences for the last three years as a professional delivery service and understanding the ins and outs and the realities that come with it has taught us a lot, has showed us things that we need, security measures you need to have in place, um, but also... Um, Still deal with that frustration as patients still want to see the cannabis. Yeah. Fortunately, we have a clear window on the cannabis so they can see what they're getting. But, you know, they're still used to the way of how they've grown up. You see it. You want to play with it. You want to smell it. You want to, you want to judge the humidity. Yeah, you want to all, all those things. So it was a different paradigm shift, one, for delivery. Uh, again, as well for the patient to then receive it and what that entailed. Because mm -hmm. that goes from... You know, is it just on the porch? Do you allowed to step into somebody's house? Do they invite you in? How does it go down? You know, yep. <laughs> it's, yep. it's, yeah. it's always unique and it's always different. It's no two transactions are ever the same. I've I'm, noticed. I'm really curious about your software that you've built yourself uh, or you've built in-house here. Uh, a, a big sticking point a lot of times when I talk to dispensaries is uh, OnFleet allows you to send like a tracking link to the customer, and then it's sort of like an Uber-type experience like that, you know? Uh, but a lot of dispensaries don't want to do that. They're really nervous about putting the location of their drivers out in the world. Like, is that, you share that concern? Yes. Yeah. Once you've had an employee, or I've myself had a gun put in your face, it changes your perspective. Yeah. So that's the reality of, actually, a guy who delivers pizza, you know? They get robbed, too. And so it just told us the realities that we face and the safety measures that we have in place, the things that we teach in our people. Nothing's worth dying over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Needless to say. Yeah. Um, but this is the realities of prohibition, you know. Unfortunately, I can call the cops and register the situation, but people who are legal or aren't licensed 
can't. Yeah. And so they're biting the bullet or going out of business or being robbed or being pistol whipped and having those unfortunate realities that happen yeah. with, that come with that reality of prohibition and delivering in the Bay Area. Yeah. You know, I've delivered from East Oakland to Richmond. Yeah. And each one is unique and different. And I would say everything for 99% of it is fine. But yeah. you still have that 1% reality that will rear its ugly head. And so safety measure that the police have kind of taught us is don't tell them where your people are. Mm. You know, because... But, but you're tracking them, hopefully, because it isn't... Yes, you I know, know where are. my people yeah. are and, and have that. But for the patient experience, that may change in time. But of... I've erred on the air of caution uh, because of the realities that have posed themselves yeah. over time. Yeah. I want it to be a utopian, wonderful world. That Yes, I think that's a great service. I use a similar service for food that does that. So I can exactly. see exactly where my caviar driver is exactly. at any moment Delivering in time. food is not so different you from know, delivering cannabis, by the way. It's, you know, agreed, yeah. but mm, the depending on what that person is carrying, it could alter the situation and yeah. you still have fraudulent situations and people abusing the system. Yeah. So we've learned loopholes along the way to nip that in the bud, all puns intended, <laughs> as best as you possibly can. You can never stop the realities that actually transpire, but you can do as much to reduce the situation by having access to the patient and their registered patients and as much as you can given, but it's unfortunately inherently a risk and will always be a risk as it's a commodity as I stated you know no matter what you have delivered that person usually say don't have more than twenty dollars etc we don't carry cash mm -hmm. you know yep. so either you bring us exact change forfeited or you know don't have the transaction and hopefully that'll change too we get yeah. some credit cards involved yeah sure. you know we'd love to be able to swipe and do those yep. things that regular businesses do you know like I said been kicked out of 35 plus banks got a little funny after the, you know, 30, and then comical after 35, but um, it just shows so the... you don't have a future in financial services, <laughs> is what you're saying. That's what you're telling us. No, I'll stick with cannabis, but there is definitely a future in financial services because of the lack thereof in our people industry. People like money. And like, yeah. People use money, and apparently my commodity is bought using money. Fascinating thing. So many different types of tools are accessible with innovators now seeing the industry and the access to the industry. You saw highly educated with it always improving of, you know, Task Rock, always improving on the um, titanium nails that they were working on to see the involvement of things like hive ceramics so that you get high-end ceramic products and high-end production glass so that you can have these scientific grade ideas and equipment now combined into a patient accessible tool that you can use your medicine wherever you need to. You know, you have evolvements for like mothership glass and things like that with bongs now that are commanding prices of $101,000 from, you know, artists. So they're taking these ideas and then creating art out of them as well. So, so the fun part really, has been watching the complete involvement yeah. of all the tentacles the, of this industry as it evolves because you're seeing the creative side, the patient-based side, the need of the patient all being addressed here just in one idea that took many years to finally come to fruition. But where will we be five years from now? Where we saw the, you know, 
absorption of those pens from the cotton now evolved to the straight oil to yeah. what will be the next thing, you know? Yeah. That's what's always fascinating, and I'm always looking to see the innovations and the technology and, and the and boundaries th that people push. I think push. that's the, the hallmark of BPG and your legacy and Debbie's legacy is that sort of patient consultation, right, that just didn't exist before. The idea that we're gonna take a few minutes and figure out what's the best thing for you to consume, right? And it sounds like you've learned so much through that iterative process over the years. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a complete evolving of tools, ideas, and then finding those people and talking to them and having those ideas evolve and others and coming along and others creating something else and that we see the ideas constantly change and we'll constantly see them change because we didn't know of rosin a few years ago. Now we know through heat and pressure that we can create a non-solvent you know, used almost BHO type of experience. Yep. You know, now we're seeing people create these huge pressured heated presses now in the 15 to 10, you know, Got 10 it. ton scales now. So, so, so what, what's next? I mean, because we're in Gateway Incubator here, uh, their companies come here looking to innovate, right? They want to know what people like you, people that run dispensaries, people that buy software, people that need services. What, where's the hole? Is there opportunity that, that you see out there? What do you want to see, Bill? There's opportunities everywhere. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I be, went to the National Cannabis Industries Association. I'm on the board because they became completely inclusive of the ancillary businesses, and not just the cannabis businesses, but the lighting companies, the fertilizer companies, yeah. all the, all the know, ancillary the, businesses. The bong companies. The bong, is, bong industry is a billion dollar industry that's been completely underground, done in the back rooms. Yep. You know, now they can have AGE and have actually glass shows. But back in the day, that was due to prohibition. They literally had to li go to actual hotel rooms, go to the regular events, and then go actually do the business for their bong shop back in the day. My first bong experience back when I was in college in West Virginia, I had to drive to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 88 and then go into this small t-shirt shop, wait till everyone left and go to the Indian couple and say, can I see your tobacco pipes? <laughs> they would go close the front door and then go over and open the small closet door and I'll, I'll ring around the closet with these different size graphics bongs. Wow. And that was it. That was how you, I knew to access, wow. you know, pipes. And so I have seen it go completely different. Yeah, when you walk into a head shop today and you yeah. see the vast array of options they have, how does that make you feel? Happy, joyful, because if they have a large stock, that means there's a lot of stoners that come in there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it just shows how pervasive. And one of the things when I learned when we traveled across the country, I saw... This one time, just to give an experience, it was in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I watched a mother and daughter at each end of the table kind of work way to each other and then go, Mom? Daughter? And they had this epiphany. <laughs> you said you were going to Jesse's. Well, you said you were going shopping. And my mentor at the time reached out behind and pulled out the joint and said, Ladies, why don't you go sit under that tree and talk about it? Wow. And they did. They actually took that joint and sat down and had that conversation. Wow. But it showed me that it's still a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Still, I have to have that knowledge to express to you. You still have to have that curiosity to ask. Unfortunately, uh, stoners and cannabis users have always had that curiosity. Lord knows they're engineers. If you've got no device and you've got cannabis and you need to ingest it, all of a sudden, everyone's MacGyver 
and you've got to all of a sudden <laughs> implement, you know what I'm saying? So yep. that constant evolving of curiosity and that um, ever inspiration that cannabis has been, you know, I've told people it's always been fascinating to wonder, are we inspired in cannabis or has cannabis inspired us and moved us to keep her alive? And through this prohibition of war. Definitely and... the latter. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what's inspired this show, no question. It's been a pleasure, Etienne. Thank, Thank you so much for being here. Plug some stuff, bpg.com, I know. Uh, mybpg.com okay. my yeah. for Berkeley Patients Group. Um, I'm also expanding into Nevada, so I will see new leaf in Nevada. You can check us out anywhere that uh, media is consumed on the internet. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you, whatever you like, making a push on Mass Roots. You could check that out, uh, investingincannabis.tv. Thanks a lot, guys. See you next time. Investing in Cannabis is 100% independent media. That means there's no parent company. We don't have anybody telling us what to do. But in order to maintain that, I, I need you. Uh, so there's this great startup called Patreon in San Francisco, uh, and they allowed you to donate a little bit of money every month, five, 10, 20 bucks, uh, to help support the creators, us, Investing in Cannabis, of this great content that you love to watch. Even if you, you aren't in a position to come out to the world or you've got a conservative job, uh, if, if you're smoking cannabis, if you're enjoying it, uh, just you know, donate a little bit of money to us anonymously. And it's just your little way to stay connected to the industry, even if you can't shout it from the rooftops. Yeah. Uh, you know, just give five, ten bucks a month. I mean, you're, you're buying that in weed anyways. And we're giving away free stuff. Uh, this episode, we got a nice pot of coffee t-shirt here, so if you want that. This is cannabis-infused cocoa here. Uh, let's see what else we have. We got the coffee version. We got some CBD stuff as well, so if you don't want to get high at work, maybe just drinking some coffee, so head over to patreon.com slash investing in cannabis. It gives you a chance to invest in cannabis. <laughs> <laughs>